Well, good morning. Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is Matthew, one of the elders here. We're grateful that uh, God's brought us together this morning. Grateful that you're here. And uh, we're starting a new series today, beginning of summer here, looking at the book of Jonah. And we're going to look at the book of Jonah over the course of the next four weeks. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll be looking at Jonah chapter 1 this morning. Now, there's, a, there's a story that goes around that they tell young preachers. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's been told enough that it's at least folklore among young preachers. But it's a story of these two older Scottish pastors who were talking together and they were chatting about the kind of the new young hotshot who was preaching down the street and how people were coming to, to Jesus through his preaching and people were being built up because of his preaching and so on. And at one point in the conversation, one says to the other, well, has he suffered much yet? And the other said, well, no, I don't think so. And he goes, well, that's too bad. He's not a great preacher yet then. We'll come back to that in a moment. You know, the book of Jonah is really quite a simple book in its message. And many of you familiar with are familiar with it. Many children's books are written about the story, about the appointed fish that swallowed up Jonah. Many are familiar with the great fish spitting Jonah back up onto dry ground. But what's the story really about? What is the point that's trying to be made in this short four-chapter book. Well, quite simply, Jonah, the book of Jonah, is an exposition into the heart of the gospel. Because the book of Jonah is a real-life depiction of sin and grace. The book of Jonah is a real-life depiction of sin and grace. Jonah is a look into how sin and grace primarily play out in one way in one person's life. It's not the whole story of his whole life, but really it's showing how sin and grace played out in his life in just one circumstance. And of course there's other characters involved that we'll deal with, like the sailors and the Ninevites, but this is first and foremost a story about how sin and grace play out in one man's life in one particular circumstance. It's a story about a God who chases after a man, a gracious and loving and merciful God who's chasing after a man who's running in rebellion and sin from him. And that's one definition that we can say sin is. Sin is running from God. Sin is running from God and grace can be defined as God chasing after us in our sin. And this is so applicable to all of us in this room, because right now, in this single moment, in this day, in this week, in this month, each of us is dealing with a particular circumstance of sin and grace. Not to give too much away too early, but every one of us is either running to God or running away from God this morning. Either running to God or running away from God this morning. You know, Portland is the kind of place that people come to to run away. And many of us have religious backgrounds in this room, and, but some of us don't. And many people come to Portland to run away from something. And they, we won't quite say it that way normally, though, do we? Instead, we'll say that maybe we, Portland appeals to more progressive values or more lifestyles are accepted here. 
But coming to Portland because of progressive values is running away from a place that's too constrictive. And most people run away from places that are too constrictive because they're running away from some kind of authority. And when you run away from authority, you're ultimately run away from God. But like I said, most of us in this room have some form of a Christian background, and we can answer the questions correctly. We know how to intellectually answer the questions correctly. I know that I'm weak. I know that I need help. I know that I need a Savior. So I've turned to Jesus Christ. But like the young Scottish pastor who hasn't gone through the trial yet, for many of us, us too, God is merely an idea. He's a concept, a set of beliefs, but he's not come close to us or you've not come close to him yet as a person. So let's read part of our text together and we'll unpack this story about Jonah. Let's read verses 1 to 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go, in, to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Sounds like what I would say to my son. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and, let, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Father, as we have already said, 
This is a depiction of sin and grace. This is us running from you and you chasing after us. And your steadfast love, your grace, your mercy that we don't deserve. So we pray, God, that you would help us this morning. That we would turn to you in faith and trust. That our hearts would again treasure Jesus Christ above all the things of this world. Help us, Lord. We ask great things, Lord, that only you can accomplish through the preaching of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. So three points you have up on the screen here. Point one, verses one to three, runaway prophet. We can learn a lot from these first three verses about the story here. Let me teach them to start and then we can unpack them and apply them to our lives. Verse 1 says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So right away, we learn something about Jonah's identity. Jonah's a prophet. He's a prophet. Jonah is someone who stands before the people of God and declares the word of God to them. Jonah hears from God, this is his job, and then he speaks the word of God to the people of God. And this isn't the first time that Jonah appears to us. In the Bible. In fact, we know by looking at 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah was likely a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And the reason that Jeroboam was the king was because of a promise that was given to Jehu. And Jehu was a king who was four generations prior. And he was a king who brought reform and order back to Israel. The most important thing that he does is that he strikes down the prophets of Baal in the temple. And he leads the people of Israel back to worshiping Yahweh and not the idol gods of Baal. Listen to what Jehu does in 2 Kings chapter 10. So as soon as he'd made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, officers, go in and strike them down and let no man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them down and went into the inner room of the house of Baal, and they brought out its pillar of that house of Baal, and they burned it, and they demolished the pillar, and they demolished the house of Baal, and check this out, they made it a latrine to this day. That's one way to do it. And because of the faithfulness here, God promises Jehu that four generations of his son will sit on the throne. And Jeroboam is the fourth of that son. And listen to this description of Jeroboam's leadership. We find Jonah in it. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. It says that Jeroboam restored the border of Israel as far as the Sea of Arabia, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. So what's the point? I give that two-minute history lesson. Because from everything that we can tell, up until this point, Jonah has been a faithful prophet. From everything we can tell, up to this point, he's been a faithful prophet. He spoke faithfully to the king, Jeroboam. He gave him the right words of God. He allowed him to push back the borders of the country as far as it needed to go. There was prosperity for a season, Because of the word of the Lord came to Jonah and he spoke it faithfully to the king. It's the first thing we learn. Second thing we learn 
Starting in verse 2. We get a new set of orders. Jonah gets a new set of orders. He says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, what you must understand is that Nineveh, in the eyes of an Israelite, is the pinnacle, is the height of an evil and wicked city. Nineveh and Assyria will come to be synonymous terms with the utter enemies of the people of God. Even into the early church, even into the first and second century, Nineveh becomes associated with Satan himself. So essentially, you have to understand to some degree what God is asking Jonah to do. It would be like saying to go into the center of Berlin at the height of World War II and the height of Nazi Germany, or go into the center of Baghdad during the 90s under Saddam's rule, or go into the center of Moscow in the middle of the Cold War and preach against it. That's what he's being asked to do. These are the people that will ultimately take God's people into captivity. So what does he do? Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You know, that, that sort of prescription there, the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came, that's the normal way that it often comes to a prophet. And what you expect to read like in 1 Kings when the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, leave here, go eastward and hide in the Kirith Ravine. Next verse says, so he did what the Lord told him, and he went to the Kirith Ravine. It's a stark contrast when we look at what Jonah does. Quite literally, the second half of verse 3 says, he went down to Joppa and found a ship that was going towards Tarshish. And we don't know for certain where Tarshish is, but it was likely in Spain. Okay, so he's getting on literally the slowest mode of transportation, and he's going in the opposite direction. He's supposed to go this way. He's supposed to go to the east, to Nineveh, goes down to Joppa, gets on a boat to Tarshish, and goes the opposite direction. So this is why we call point one the runaway, the runaway, the runaway prophet. So what do we need to learn here? What do we need to learn here? First, the first step in understanding the message of Jonah and the first step in understanding this message of sin and grace that every single person in this room needs to understand is that everybody runs from God. Is that everybody runs from God. But the second thing that we need to know that's even more important maybe is that everyone needs to learn their own way of running from God. We all run from God in different ways. Not everyone runs from God in the same way. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. What's the first thing Adam and Eve do after they sin in the garden? They hide. They hid from God. We must, every single one of us, must first and foremost see and see ourselves as fugitives running from God. 
We won't understand the message of sin and grace. We won't understand the nature of grace, the loving kindness of God pursuing Jonah and pursuing us if we don't first and foremost understand the bad news and see ourselves as fugitives running from God. So how does this look specifically for Jonah? And how does it then look for us? God is essentially asking Jonah to do something that's impossible. He's essentially asking Jonah to do something that's impossible. As we said a second ago, the analogy of going to Berlin or going to Baghdad. He's asking this evil and wicked empire to repent and turn back to God. That's an impossible task for Jonah to accomplish. Okay. Yes, he can faithfully go preach against the city and maybe get arrested, maybe get killed, maybe get beheaded. But the task of actually seeing these people converted is an impossible task for Jonah himself to do. Only God and God alone can do it. So Jonah concludes, I think we so often conclude as well, that because he could not see any good reasons for God's command, that therefore there couldn't be any good reasons. I'll say that again. Jonah likely concluded that because he couldn't see any possible good reason for God's commands, there must not have been any good reasons. And how often do we do that? How often do we look at what God is commanding and calling us to do, and we see no possible good in it? And so we therefore conclude there can't be any possible good in it. And so we hide or so we flee. You know, one way this potentially looks, if I was thinking about an analogy, is that when you're on the battlefield, when someone's on a battlefield and they receive orders from their commanding officer, there isn't time often to ask the why to understand all the rationale that comes behind everything, all the decisions that have made days and weeks prior. You know, we just passed the anniversary of D-Day. You know, the planning for D-Day took over a year to plan. It took a year to accomplish that. That single day invasion was 365 days of planning. And how many scores and hours and intel and people were involved in making this decision and deciding when to go and when not to go. And there isn't the luxury that in the moment for every single soldier to be given every single reason why. They must, therefore, trust the character of their commanders. They must trust the character of their commanders. And the same is so often true with us. How much more so when we compare our lives or this complex world to D-Day, everything that went into D-Day and the invasion of the beaches of Normandy, how much more of the God that upholds everything by the word of his power, who controls every single moment that happens of every single existence of history from the beginning of time till the end. He must have an infinite number of reasons for everything that he does. And it would be impossible for him to explain every possible reason to us when he commands us to do something. So just like the soldiers at Normandy, how much more are we called to trust the character of our great captain? To trust his character, his steadfast love, his goodness towards us. So that when it seems like there could not possibly be any good and what he's calling us to do, the conclusion, therefore, isn't there isn't any good in it. 
It's there must be reasons beyond our understanding. Is there something in your life right now that God's calling you to obey him and trusting him in, but it seems utterly impossible? Is there something? What is it in your life this morning that God is calling you to obey him in, to trust him in, to look to his word as hard as it may be? He's revealed himself to you in his word. And there's such a temptation to flee and get in the boat and go the other direction. And we know why Jonah fled. I'm not going to steal all the thunder from the sermons that are coming up in a couple weeks, but Jonas will tell us why he fled in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Is this not why I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The reason he fled is pretty shocking. He didn't want God to be merciful on the Ninevites. He didn't want him to. He says, I told you, God, I knew you were stinking gracious. (laughs) I think we can understand that from his perspective, Israel probably wasn't safe until Assyria was just gone Till it was just wiped out? How can it make sense to not just wipe out Assyria? But fundamentally, something that Jonah didn't understand was that God's purpose from the beginning, God's purpose throughout all of the scriptures, is that, he would be a, that the Israel would be a light to the Gentiles. God's promise to Abram from the very beginning says, Go to your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make you great so that you will be a blessing. That through Abraham, God's plan from the beginning was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed, through his son. This is the promise. This is what God commands in Isaiah 42. I will take you by the hand. I will give you a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. That's the message That God has given to Israel throughout the Old Testament that they would be a light to the nations. And then when we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, the first thing that we read about the genealogy of Jesus Christ is that he's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. He's the son that we've been waiting for. He's the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's the one that will sit on the throne forever ruling righteously. He's the rightful king of Israel, the rightful king of the world. And at the end of his gospel, Matthew's gospel, remembering 1-1, think about Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, that all authority on earth has been given to me, because he's the king. He's the son of David. Go, therefore, and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Which is why Michelle read the text she did this morning from Acts chapter 1, that they were to wait in the city till they received the Holy Spirit, and they were then to go be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and all the way to the end of the earth. You know where the end of the earth probably was in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? Probably right here. And Jonah didn't understand that. Jonah didn't understand the master plan of God. To save the Gentiles, to be a light to the nations. And Jonah's problem 
As he says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, the reason he's the runaway prophet for something that we could call this need to be superior to somebody else, a self-righteousness of sorts, that he was a Hebrew, as he says to us in our text this morning. There's all sorts of ways, my friends, that we seek to make ourselves superior to somebody else, the ways that we make ourselves to be self-righteous, but the nature of the gospel absolutely comes in the face and obliterates self-righteousness. Because the nature of the gospel is that you are saved by nothing of your own. You are saved merely by the sheer mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ. You didn't do anything to own it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to get it. God simply put his love on you and he chose you before the foundation of the world because he chose to. Because he's God and it's within his sovereign purposes and rights to do so. And to the degree that that sinks down from our heads to our hearts, it smashes self-righteousness. It smashes our desire to be superior to somebody else. We do it in so many ways. For those of us that have suffered before and have suffered a lot, there's a tendency for us to feel superior to people who haven't, thinking that we have a depth of character. We have a depth of character traits. We know what it is to really taste and see. For those of us that haven't suffered, we look on those people that have suffered and been like, they must have done something wrong. I mean, look how much that guy suffers. There's all sorts of ways we make ourselves feel superior and self-righteous to people. But when we see the gospel, and when Jonah sees the gospel, and Jonah sees himself as wicked as those Ninevites, that's what he needed. That's why we say every single one of us needs to see that we are fugitives of God, that we've all run away from him. And then and only then can we begin to understand and grasp the nature of the gospel I'll push this extremely long point one a little bit longer. My sermons tend to be pyramids, so don't worry. The longest point's first. Because I want to press something else into us. We've already said it once, but where does Jonah flee? Jonah flees to Tarshish. Jonah flees the other direction. And there will always be a boat to Tarshish in your lives. If we allow bitterness and unforgiveness to fester in our heart and minds, someday there will be a stone or a dagger to stab someone in the back with. Sin is always crouching at the door. If we allow lustful thoughts and allow ourselves, if you allow yourself the indulgence of pornography, Someday there will be a boat to Tarshish in the form of another woman's bed. Away from the presence of God. If we allow greed and want and dissatisfaction for what we have to fester in our hearts and minds, there will be a boat to Tarshish, the other way to rob, steal, take advantage, or cheat. Because sin so often is like a cancer not like a punch in the face. Sin so often is more like a cancer than it is just a direct blow to the face. It grows slowly and it begins to take over in ways that we don't even understand, that we don't even know. The bitterness, the unforgiveness, the lust, the pride begin to take over our hearts and minds in ways that we don't understand and then the opportunity presents itself. The boat is right there to Tarshish to go the other direction away from the presence of the Lord. And we go. 
away from the presence of the Lord. That's the end of verse 3. Obviously, it doesn't mean that the writer of the book of Jonah doesn't understand that God is omnipresent. Obviously, the writer of the book of Jonah knows that God is everywhere. He's God. It must mean something else. He means away from the felt presence of God. He means away from the smile of God. He means away from having God as the ruler and reigner over his life. The beauty of God, the glory of God, all we can conclude is that this person, Jonah here, hasn't tasted and seen that the Lord is good because the psalmist will say, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. One that has tasted and seen the beauty and glory of God in the gospel, in his steadfast love, in his grace, in his mercy, doesn't desire to run away from it, but desires to run to it, to get more of it and more of it, to taste him more, see him more, see his beauty, see the depth of his love, the depth of his mercy towards us. So what does God do to this fleeing prophet? That's point two. Verses four through six, the storm. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, are, are pretty shocking words. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Pretty shocking words. What does God do to this fleeing prophet that we find ourselves with here? He sends a great storm upon the sea. You know, the Bible does not say that every difficulty we experience is a result of our sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring us into difficulty. The Bible doesn't say that every difficulty is a result of our own personal sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring us into difficulty, that all sin has some kind of mighty storm attached to it. There's a verse that is so helpful to so many of us. Maybe the greatest verse in all that Paul ever wrote, that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. But it takes a lifetime to understand and unpack how God does that. It takes a lifetime to understand and unpack how God does that. Because sometimes God's going to do that by doing what he does in verse 4. He's going to send a storm. He's accomplishing good in Jonah's life. His steadfast love is playing out in Jonah's life through the means of a great storm on the sea. And our temptation when storms come, our temptation when trials come, our temptation when difficulties come is to believe that God's absent, that God isn't there, that God has forgotten us, that God has abandoned us. But Jonah chapter 1 verse 4 is a great reminder. It is a hard truth for us to swallow that God himself sends great storms into our lives. Because we know that reproof, we know that discipline, we know that correction is a sign of belonging. Correction and reproof and discipline are not the sign of not being in the family of God. It's not the sign of God not loving us. Rather, it's the sign of God's great care for us. Proverbs chapter 3, the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the father, as a father and the son in whom he delights. God disciplines. God brings storms into people's lives that he delights in. You know, there's a story, there's a, a fairy tale 
And it's a story of a witch who turns people into stones if they sleep in her, this bed that she has. And the way that they turn into stone is if they wake up when the darkness is gone and they're turned into stone, okay? And they turn into a statue. And sort of the tormenting part of it is that they're aware that they're a, sto- a stone. It's like being buried alive or something like that. But the story goes that uh, someone comes one day and, and the witch has, has, has drawn this person in to sleep in this bed. And the, the witch's servant, who's a young girl, uh, cares for this person that's about to sleep in this bed. And so what this person does is she puts thorns in the bed and she puts, she, she puts snakes in the bed and, and she throws stones at the, at the man all night while he's trying to sleep. And he arises before dawn and he's angry and he's frustrated for the night's sleep he has and he goes on his journey. And it was only because the thorns, and it was only because the stones, that the man didn't fall asleep and turn into a stone. That it was the loving kindness of this young servant girl that saved and protected this traveler from a destiny being stuck in a stone, aware of his coffin. How much more so does God do that for someone that he loves like this person, Jonah? One question we must ask ourselves is why would God do this to Jonah? And I think one of the answers is because Jonah has been asked to preach against sin and preach grace to a people but he himself doesn't understand it yet. He's been asked to preach against sin, and he's been asked to preach grace and mercy and forgiveness to a people, and he himself doesn't understand the mercy and grace that he himself has received. That's something that God uses this storm, God uses this situation for him to realize. But what's remarkable and shocking and somewhat scary for us is that what I haven't said so far is that storms don't inevitably turn people into virtuous people. Storms, it's not just because you're going through a storm, it's not a guarantee that you're going to pop out the other side this wonderful person of virtue and character and so on. Even look at our text here in verse 5. When the captain comes down to Jonah and he's sleeping in the midst of the storm, He hasn't quite got it yet, folks. The storm is raging around him and he doesn't care. In fact, it says in uh, in verse 5, but Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it suggests that he was snoring. He's fast asleep. He's down there just sawing logs. Okay, Storms isn't a guarantee that it'll turn people into virtuous People. There are very bitter people out there that will say, well, it was because so-and-so did this to me. It was so-and-so did that to me. It's not just because you go through a storm means you end up a virtuous person, but that person was just the occasion to bring out the bitterness that already existed in your own heart. How we respond in the midst of the trial. How we respond in the midst of the trial is so often the key. Until we realize that we're not in control of our lives, we aren't in control of our lives. 
Until we realize that we're not in control of our lives, then we're not in control of our lives. Until we realize that we, need the, we are desperate, needy fugitives from God and need his ever-present love, patience, and care, God will use any means to discipline us for those that he loves. He'll use any means to draw us to himself and show that to us. So let's look at point three, verses six to 16, the solution, the solution. Starting at verse seven, and he said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and it fell on Jonah. And they said, tell us on whose account this evil has come. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Who are your people? And he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and sent him, what is it you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now there's a lot of different interpretive theories when it comes to understanding this part of Jonah. Some would suggest that what Jonah's doing here is he's despairing of life itself, and when he's saying, throw me into the sea, he's basically committing suicide. I don't think that's going on here. I think instead what we're starting to see is the beginning of someone who's cracking, the beginning of someone who's starting to repent on some degree, someone who's beginning to take responsibility, someone who's beginning to take responsibility. Yes, his, the way he speaks in, chat, in verse 9 can be taken a bit snarky, and some commentators would even suggest that he's even being racist in the way that he says it by saying that he's a Hebrew first, he's comparing himself to these people, he's comparing himself to these people. Tim Keller suggests that. But I think what's most important for us is to see that this man, on some level, is beginning to take responsibility for his actions. He's beginning to start to repent. So what does he do? What is the solution? When we find ourselves in the midst of the storm, when we have run from God, when we've gone the other direction, when a great storm has come upon us, What's the solution? The solution is to submit to the storm. The solution is to submit to the storm. You see what Jonah says, of course, is he tells them to pick him up and to cast him into the sea. So often when we find ourselves in the midst of a trial, when we find ourselves in the midst of a difficulty, in the midst of an unwanted circumstance, the way out is to stay in. The way, through the, tr- the way out of the trial is through the trial. James will repeat this for us. In fact, m- much of what the Bible and the New Testament has to say about the nature of trial will repeat this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Oh, we remember that place in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 when Paul's instructing in his closing remarks to the Ephesians, he says, having done everything to, 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 to stand fast, stand therefore. Having prepared yourself, having put on the whole armor of God to endure and to stand, stand. Something worth noting here is that the sailors are victims of Jonah's storm is that the sailors are victims of Jonah's storms and there can be 
the temptation to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? How come these sailors are just left to be the victims of Jonah's disobedience? What did they do? They didn't hear the voice of God to go somewhere. Why do they have to endure this massive storm and potentially lose their lives if this person doesn't submit himself to God? I suggest to us it's the complete wrong question. That everyone is a fugitive of God. Everyone has run from him. And the question is, is that how can, given all that we've done, as much as we've spurned God and run the other direction from him and not honored him as we should, how does he give us anything good? Why would he give us anything good? We've not acknowledged him. We've not loved him as we should. We've not honored him. We've not thanked him for the last breath that we took. But why does he continue to give us another breath? Why does he bring love into our lives? Why does he give us marriages and children and happiness and joy when we've completely rebelled and gone the other direction from him? And I'm talking about before we came to know God through Jesus Christ. Why would God do that? Because he's a loving, merciful, good God. He does not give everybody everything they deserve. He's gracious exceedingly to us. The last breath that you took, you absolutely don't deserve. But because of his character, because of his nature, because of his great love, he gives it to us. You know who understood this well? was Sarah Edwards. It was Jonathan Edwards' wife. Jonathan Edwards was the, uh, a great theologian in the 18th century. And he died pretty prematurely, died in his mid-50s. And Sarah Edwards writes a letter to her daughter upon hearing that her husband has, has died. She says, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah. You see, she understood something about the grace and the mercy and nature of God, that everything that she'd received was a gift from his loving hand. So no, the question isn't why do bad things happen to good people. The question is how can bad people receive good things? How can wicked people receive anything good from God? Because of his love. Because of his mercy. Well, as we begin to draw to a close here, there's something that we can see by way of application. Look what the sailors do in verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord and said, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and let us and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You know, in your Bibles... That comes up capital L-O-R-D, right? That's the covenant name of God. The sailors are calling on the covenant name of God. And later what we'll see in Jonah chapter 3 is that the Ninevites too 
The Ninevites too will begin to call on the covenant name of God. The promise to Abraham is that, the, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And we begin to see that, that Jonah's the antitype of sorts now. That it's the sailors who respond to Yahweh. It's the Ninevites who later on will respond to Yahweh. And they do it, they see it, because of this runaway prophet with a potential half-hearted repentance. So if it should show us anything, it should show us that evangelism, that God saving people is solely and surely by the sovereign mercy and work of God. Because if I was going to write a book on a how-to of evangelism, I wouldn't write it as Jonah chapter 1. I wouldn't say, completely rebel against God, run the other direction, put a bunch of people in danger, and then tell them you're a Christian and see what happens. But God is sovereign in those whom he'll save. He's sovereign in his mercy. Should encourage us in the task of evangelism. Our evangelism, our witnessing will always come up short. It'll always be half-hearted. We'll always be weak people. We'll always stumble over our words. I do. But it's God who saves. We have a confidence in a sovereign God who saves Which means it's okay to exhale in your evangelism. Just be honest with people about how important Jesus Christ really is to you. Even if you don't say it perfectly every time, rest in the reality that God is the sovereign one who saves sinners. Well, of course there's a parallel here as we come to a close. And Brian will start his sermon next week in verse 17 when we see that there's a fish that's appointed to swallow up Jonah for three days and three nights. And of course we know that Jesus will tell us that the sign of Jonah has come. That when we cast ourselves into the storm, the storm that has been appointed to discipline us, to instruct us, to bring us to the end of ourselves, that storm is never the wrath of God against us. Because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the one who's hurled into the sea of God's wrath. Who experiences the punishment and the penalty for sin. So that when you and I are in the storm, it's always the loving hand of a gracious father. As hard as it may seem, our storms will always be the discipline that's bringing us back to a loving father. It'll never be the wrath that casts us out. Because the wrath that casts us out was poured out on Jesus Christ himself. The greatest storm was the raging storm of God's wrath against sin. God's righteous, good, holy anger against sin. And it was not poured out on you if you were in Jesus Christ. Because it was poured out on him. The penalty and the punishment and the anger and the wrath of God came down on the head of his son. When he was cast into the great sea, the whirling tempest of the wrath of God. But you know what? That sea calmed too. That sea calmed too. Because Jesus Christ was the sinless one. He was the God-man. And three days later, he rose from the grave, showing himself victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And now... There are just peaceful streams. There are green pastures that a shepherd leads us alongside of. No more wrath to expect. No more expectation of condemnation. 
because Jesus himself experienced it for us. Therefore, our trials, our storms, will only and always be the loving wounds of a gracious Father. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through the fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame will not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this word. Help us now as we go to the Lord's table to search for you, to see your goodness, to see your kindness, to see the ways in which we've ran from you and the ways in which you have pursued us with your love and your mercy and your grace. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's spend a few moments in quiet reflection considering how God would have us respond to his word.